Stay tuned for an exclusive SFN Radio interview coming up next. Hi, welcome to SFN Radio's High Frequency with your host, Christy Walsh. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to welcome William Whitecloud to High Frequency, the show on sfnradio.com. I'm your host, Christy Walsh. William Whitecloud is letting us hear about his new best-selling book, and I'm really excited about talking about it today. It's called The Last Shaman. William Whitecloud is an author of Australia's number one best-selling metaphysical book, The Magician's Way, and he's also an internationally acclaimed speaker and presenter who's been instrumental in changing thousands of lives across the world. He's created powerful techniques for self-transformation, which he's used to transform his own circumstances, to live a magical and fulfilling life, and he lets others share in his life's work and teaches practical tools of magic to people everywhere. So welcome, William. Hey, Christy. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm I'm real excited to be talking to you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be able to talk about this book. I'm still in the middle of reading it, just so people out there know, but it's, it's totally fascinating. It's based in Africa and you get to hear about all sorts of amazing things like shape-shifting and cave art and um, I've actually been on sites looking at more ancient cave art around the globe and there's a lot of it. So I'd love to hear about your experience bringing this book to light and there's a level of sharing going on with the book that I think was probably really personal to you. So maybe you could let us know a little bit about that magic. Sure. Well, just in, in broad terms, the, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. I mean, it's an allegorical novel, which means that it's a story that's conveying lessons through it, obviously. Essentially, what the book's really about, I mean, the aim of the book, my aim, was to convey principles that support people in living a life in such a way that they're guided through their life towards their, that they're able to follow a higher guidance in, in accordance with and in also in line with their, their highest destiny or highest potential, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, it's, Christy, it's really tricky to write a book like that. Book, books that are stories um, that are engaging and popular tend to be very flowery. And if you really look at them, they, they, they're lovely to read and they inspire you to be on a, you know, on a, on a higher path. And yet, if you look at them tangibly, they don't really offer hard, cold facts, really, you know, tangible uh, lessons that you can really use to, by, by which to, to navigate your life. And on the other hand, when you read the textbooks on the subject, they can be very dry and turgid and, and even boring people complain to me about them. So, so to get them mixed right is, is a very delicate ba- balance. And, and I had these principles that I wanted to convey and I just didn't know how to do it. You know, I was just waiting for the right story to come to come my way. And then one day I was in Africa visiting my family, and my brother introduced me to Africa's foremost rock art expert, this man who's an expert on Bushman paintings, and uh, who, who these people have been painting, you know, with just, just sticks and ochre, doing these remarkable paintings on cave walls. For 27,000 years now, the first of them, because they roamed all over Africa and southern Europe, this this clan of people. And anyway, this this man took me out into the field. And I had seen a lot of these uh, paintings when I was growing up in Africa, all, all over the place. And we were very ignorant about about these paintings. We we assumed by looking at them 
we assumed that they were pictures of hunting stories. They, they were, you know, the, 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 the tribesmen painting their trophies on the wall, what they had killed, or, or that they were scenes depicting clan warfare. But once this man, uh, this expert explained to me what it was about, I, I, was, I was absolutely taken with it and absolutely fascinated because he, he took me out into the field and, and showed me paintings going back that had been dated back to 6,000 years old. And in every case, what he was able to show to me and demonstrate was that they're actually all depicting, that in every single case, every one of these paintings is a depiction of a shamanic journey where what it is, is, is the shaman goes into trance and then he goes into the other world and always these paintings were, were selected to be painted on, on walls. The, the selection of the walls was such that there's a crack down the middle of the wall uh, because it helps denote, denote the person, the, the shaman going through the crack in the wall into the other world, onto the other side, into this other dimension where they did whatever they had to do to harmonize that dimension, that world, and, and then that created a corresponding harmony in our world so that if it was a drought, if they needed to make rain or if someone needed healing or they had to uh, divine some wisdom, he'd go into this other world, he'd go into a trance, go into this other world and sort things out there, get the information there, whatever, and then come back and wake up in this world with this world reordered, with his patient healed or, the you know, it's raining or, or, or knowing what... That the tribe needed to know, and you know, it, it's it's just so fascinating. One of the fascinating aspects of it is that none of these people were trained in painting. That the the inspiration came spontaneously when they came out of trance. They you know that they, they were so inspired by the experience that they needed to record it. So then they'd without any training go and and find the materials, the sticks and the ochre, and come back to or find a wall and and paint uh, these incredible paintings, which some of them are absolutely photographic in quality. Um, and you know, just just the 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 the, in, the the inspiration I got from that, from seeing just what a what a super conscious state these people must have been, must have gone into, to to be able to you know um, affect what they affected through their trances, but then also to do this incredible creative artwork. Uh, and I, I just thought, you know, here was it just you know it hit me that this was my story. What what if I could take my main character? who is the character from The Magician's Way, my first best-selling book, and take him on this journey where he, he would go into another world effectively, learn what he has to learn, and then come back sort of uh, renewed and, and uh, enabled with, with the powers that he could apply in, in, in this waking lifetime and uh, benefit himself and the society that he belongs to. And so that, that is the story of the last shaman. I mean, I'm not a, a shaman, and I, I don't practice shamanism per se, but it, it's just, it's just a, a wonderful vehicle for, for, you know, well, it's just a great story anyway, and, and then also a brilliant way of conveying the principles that I wanted to convey. So one of those principles, I think, had to do with innocence and finding the space of innocence, and I'd love to hear a little more about that. Sure. Well, I'd, I'd love to talk about that because you touch on something really fundamental to, you know, living our lives magically. And by living your life magically, I mean the, the sort of academic definition of magic rather than the woohoo <laughs> definition <laughs> of magic. But, but, you know, the academic definition of magic is just simply the ability to live your life guided by intuition. 
so that you, you're not guided by your, your, your rational egoic conditioning, you see. And, and the central to, to intuition, I mean, the bridge to intuition is actually the, the, the term you use there is, is innocence, in no sense, outside of thoughts and feelings. And, you know, the, the thing is that no matter what we learn about personal development and spiritual principles and that sort of thing, there, there can still be some fundamental misconceptions that we can subscribe to that, as long as we do, doesn't allow us to really grow very effectively, no matter what we learn and, and what we do. And one of those misconceptions, Christy, is, is just simply this, is that I think that the way we approach our lives, the, the, the typical human tendency in, in the approach to living is to assume that what life is about is we, we face with a bunch of circumstances, situations, problems, whatever, and we see the meaning of our lives as having to cope with all of that, <laughs> you see, and, mm -hmm. and that the, the, the way to cope with that is, is in a mechanical, rational way, that the best we're going to do is, is as good as we can figure it out, as good as we can work it out, as, as good as we can understand it and, and use that understanding as effectively as we can. And, and so we live our, our lives in a way where we're trying to work our lives out and, and kind of think our way out of everything, really, you see. Yeah. And, and you see, the, the problem with that is, is it's a rational function, basically. And it's the rational function, it's our own rational function that in the first place created the limiting beliefs, the sense of separation, the sense of limitation, the sense of incompleteness that we're subject to. You know, and, and, and so when, when, we, when we try and work our problems out and we try and resolve our um, situations and circumstances mentally, then, or, or rationally anyway, then we're handing over to this part of us that created our belief systems, our, our limiting belief systems, and then we, uh, you know, orientate through the, through the, the scope of, of, of those limiting perceptions. We project those limiting perceptions on, onto our situations and, and thereby actually don't really resolve them ultimately. We're ultimately just perpetuating our own identity and keeping ourselves within the scope of that uh, limited conditioning. And now to get out of that, we actually have to soften our focus. We actually have to go into something that doesn't make sense to us, which is to not need to understand so much, to not work it out so much. To, to, mm -hmm. to suspend that, that, that need to know, that, that, that need to understand, that tension. And, and, and when we do, when we go into the mystery and, and don't need to know and, and, and let go, well, then a whole new set of information occurs to us. Then we enter into the creative territory. We enter into the territory of our genius where a new set of information occurs to us that's actually relevant. We see the connections that are there to be made and we see the the possibilities are there that, that are there that, that we can take advantage of that we don't normally see because we're just so stuck in in the same way of seeing things everywhere and uh, every time and i think that almost defines creativity you know is is if you look at, at a great artwork which we can um you know agree on as as, as one form of creativity art when we, when we enjoy a really brilliant piece of art, it's well executed, but also the artist sees it from a different perspective than we always see it, and, and it's, it's fresh and new to us. And, uh, you know, in, in that sense, 
it's, it's exhilarating for us to observe. And, and, and that's, the, that's the nature of creativity, is to see things in a new light, from a new perspective, in a new way, in, in, a, in a more brilliant way than we normally do in our normal plod, plod, plod um, life. <laughs> and, and so this is what innocence opens us up to. It opens us up to the brilliance of ourselves and the brilliance of life, I think. Yeah, it seems it seems like the figuring out things all the time. We can get really good at that. Um, <laughs> you know, we should pass out awards for that. For really difficult situations we got ourselves out of. That doesn't do a lot. And I think most humans figure that out, but they don't know what the next step is. Like now that I know how to navigate all sorts of weird things that can happen to my life, then where do I go? Yeah. Like there has to be something else. So I like this idea of just getting into this uh, childlike state. Well, it's actually newborn state, like you're barely even born state. And you start looking around and see what happens. It's, it, it, it is. It's, and and, and, and I'm, I'm so glad you, you kind of corrected yourself there, uh, Christy, because, you know, the thing is that we, we, we can um, have a relationship with innocence that you know, our, our old definition of it is, is, is as though it's, it's a state that's childlike and naive. But actually, it's, it's a very powerful state. And, and uh, when, when you read mythology, I mean, of, of any kind, even if you read the Bible, Christ did say that only as a child shall you enter the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, you know, to me, what's he talking about? Now, you, you might take the Bible literally and believe in a place in the clouds. Or you could say, well, what he is talking about is this place that is outside of the same old, same old, of the old boring routine and um, patterned way of living into this fresh, beautiful, creative um, world full of possibility and potential that, that he's talking about. That's the kingdom of heaven. And only as a child can you get there because if, if you're full of experience and full of understanding and, and you're a cup that's all full, well, how mm -hmm. are you going to have anything new in there? And if you read, uh, for instance, Robert Mallory, the, the, the first written version of the King Arthur myth, the, the most powerful knight in the land was not actually King Arthur. Yeah. So Galahad was actually the most powerful knight in the land. And, and he, he compelled the quest of the Holy Grail when all the other knights saw his innocence and they all wanted that. And that was the end of the round table. You know, when King Arthur, when, when, when Galahad joined the Knights of the Round Table, in Mallory's story anyway, King Arthur famously said, you know, he just took one look at Sir Galahad and said, this is the end of the round table because he knew he, he, there was something greater in this person that, that would destroy this boys club, you know, this, and, and it did, you know, they, they beheld his, his true power, you see, and, and then went in, in um, search of, of what he had, of what Galahad, uh, what Galahad had. But, <laughs> you see, the, the thing is, though, about it is that, and, and this is why it's, a, it's an important thing to study, Intuition isn't just something you, the average person is, is just going to get a handle on. Normally we experience it as some random gut feel or sense that we had once that, you know, Aunt Bertha wasn't well and sure enough we got a phone call from the hospital or, or we, mm -hmm. we, we knew that cat walking across the street wasn't good news or, or whatever. You know. <laughs> and, and we go, yeah, you know, I've had an intuitive experience, but actually – it's a God-given mode of awareness that is, is available to us every second 
of of our lives, and it's, it's it's a higher way of of seeing things. And I put it to you the most our functional um, way of seeing things because it's it's actually and a very objective and relevant way of 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 seeing things. So it's a, you know it's a, it's it's something that's available to us and and that we want to actually really develop and take seriously. But the the problem is it it takes a bit of coaching in in developing it, and that's why I, I thought it's so important to to write this book, The Last Shaman. Which is, other than a great story, is an instruction on on these principles. Because you see, the, the thing is, at the heart of it, it's, it's not difficult to develop um, intuition. I, I can rattle off right now the, the 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 techniques for for developing a very powerful intuition. But but that's not the that's not the discipline that's got to be learned. The and and, and the skill really is. Is this is that you've got to be able to go into innocence and hang out in innocence because when you suspend your rational function, the the, the intuitive information that's going to occur to you largely is not going to make sense to you because that's why you weren't getting it before because it mm-hmm. it didn't make it it doesn't fit in with your rational paradigm so therefore it's unconsciously battered away by your mind all the time. You know, the, the dictionary definition of intuition is what the mind apprehends before rationalizing. And before we even know we got information coming in, we're already dismissing it. I saw a cartoon the other day on Facebook, and it was a fabulous cartoon. And it was, a, you know, these, these, these cartoon characters and, and flying through, traveling through space. And there's a captain at the wheel of a ship and, and some other officer coming up to him and saying, sir, there's information coming in that contradicts what we already know. And the, cap- <laughs> and the captain says, well, then get rid of it. <laughs> 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 and, and you see, the, the, the skill is in hanging out with attention, in, in, in not having, t- it's like the talking heads. I don't know if you old enough, Christy, to remember a band called Talking Heads. But oh, yeah. They had problem, <laughs> you know, stop making sense. And, you know, I mean, they were very tuned into this. They were college artists and, you know, college grads and art, art, art grads. And they knew this stuff. They knew, the, you know, all about the creative orientation. And um, it's an orientation in which, you know, you, you, you're not trying to make sense of things. You, 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 you're, you're hanging out with, with the discrepancy of things being different than you assume they are. Yeah, so... So let's say your rational mind has just taken over. <laughs> it's figuring things out, you know, and maybe you were. <laughs> I said it enjoys that. <laughs> yeah, it enjoys that. It's very busy. It, you know, it's doing its job. Uh, but you're in the middle of a creative project. And so the problem solving isn't actually getting the project complete. So this idea of intuition and innocence sort of gives you a way back to that that essence of probably the creativity that you wanted to bring forth instead of the problem solving. And I guess I'm not quite sure where the world is going, but usually I'm pretty positive about it all. <laughs> but it, it, it seems like uh, this idea of the innocence and intuition, and there's other concepts in the book that you talk about, it, it's like it's, it, it's something I think that's almost required. Like we we better hurry up and, and get to that part of ourselves um, because it seems like there's something else going on with the human experience. Like there's something more. 
anyway, in the world around us and the people that we talk to every day and, you know, new people that we meet. It's like there's something else brewing out there. So Absolutely. How do, Absolutely. That, yeah. it, it, it is. And, and, you know, the people that are going to harness and, and benefit from it the most are people that can um, think differently. And, and I, I shouldn't even say think because it, it, it can operate mentally in a very different way and, and, and in a much more intuitive way in a, and in a, in, a, in a sensitive way, you see. And so uh, w- what I see happening now in, in every sphere of life is, is the sensitives, as I would call, call them, are, are starting, you know, the sensitives were out of fashion for a long time and had a rough start in, in, you know, in the age of reason and, and this, this whole mechanical age that Newton and, and Descartes and all of them sent us into. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's coming back now that that, um, that, that rational paradigm has, has sort of outplayed itself, outlived itself. And, 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 and I, I really agree with you. There is something brewing. And the people that are sensitive to that brew that can sniff its aroma and, you know, uh, savor it, that, they're the ones that are benefiting in every area of, of life right now, I must say. Within the book, there's references to hermetic philosophies and there's a couple of ideas like innocence and getting back to the innocence. There's a couple more that I won't bring up because people have to read the book. But um, (laughs) the story about the last shaman is really applicable to the modern world. So we're not in this mechanical state all the time. But there is pieces in the story where you talk about shape-shifting, where a human becomes like an animal and sort of demonstrates the, the animal characteristics as if there's this giant separation between human and animal when actually there's not. Yeah. But it's something that the rational mind wants to explain away. Even as I'm talking right now, it's like it's all getting fired up. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually have seen a shape-shifting event in Mill Valley, California, and I still can't really explain it. But I know what I saw and the time and the space and the energy that was around it all. And it can happen anywhere. I just would want to sort of touch on that idea of shape-shifting and and how do you think we can use it in our modern world? When I first came across shape-shifting, I assumed that it it was restricted to some uh, Native American cultures. I I didn't realize that actually... Shape-shifting has been central to every culture and civilization through all history. Shape-shifting was accepted in England up until 300 years ago. It was central to the English culture. You know, it took me a long time to realize that I had grown up in, a, in an active shape-shifting culture because, you know, it totally escaped me. But I was, I was, I was hunting one day with, with a, when I was older with a, a, some trackers. And we were driving along to this hunting ground and a baboon ran on, on this plain, you see, and, and a flat open area and a baboon ran across our path. And I, I said to the tracker sitting next to me, because the others were on the back of the truck, I said to the tracker sitting next to me, um, geez, see that baboon, we, we nearly hit it. And, they, and, and he laughed. And, and I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, that wasn't a baboon. And I said, what are you talking about? He said... Where, where are the other baboons? You know, there, there, there are no other baboons, and, and baboons are all together. I said, you're right, no, but that, that was a baboon. He said, no, it wasn't. And, and I stopped the truck, and I said to the other guys on the back of the truck, I said to them, uh, did you guys see that baboon? Because I wanted to prove this guy wrong. And they said, no, there wasn't a baboon there. That, 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 I said, but didn't you see that thing that ran across the road? And 
And I said, yeah, but that wasn't a baboon. So I said, what was that then? They said, oh, it's Longa. And Longa was the name of this other tracker who wasn't with us that day. And they said, that, that was Longa. He often gets around as a baboon, you know. And, I mean, that just, you know, I just, that, that just flattened me. It floored me. It's just like, what the hell are you guys talking about, you know. And, and, and to them, it was just like, yep, totally natural. That, that's one of their buddies. He gets around as a baboon, you know. And, <laughs> and the thing is about it is, though, is that it doesn't matter whether you accept shape-shifting as a literal phenomenon or not. As a, as a metaphor, as a psychic metaphor, it's absolutely accurate because, you see, that the metaphor of shape-shifting is just this, Christy, is that you can become something else by taking on its vibration, you see. And, and that's what it is. You, you, you shift how you become a baboon, for instance, is you become the vibration of a baboon and then you are a baboon. And, and, and you can, as I say, you can accept that as a literal or as metaphor, but, but it works in, in, in um, intuitive and psychic ability te te techniques. Shape-shifting, I think, is the most powerful psychic technique or intuitive technique there is because, you see, normally how we see things, we look at things from the perspective of ourselves and we see it from the perspective of our identity. So when we look, if I'm talking to you, I'm talking to who I believe I'm talking to, not who I'm actually talking to. You are not who I'm actually talking to. Uh, I mean, you are, actually, you are actually who you are, not who I believe I'm talking to. You see, and there's, there's a big yeah. When we look at trees, when we look at the scenery, anything that, you know, you'd be amazed at how false our perception is. When we look at things and we experience things, we're seeing them for what we believe they are, not what they are. If you look at a rock or a stone, you see it as an inanimate object. You just see it as a hard... I mean, physics has now taught us that there's no such thing as solid, that, that there's nothing, there's no materialism, there's no material in materialism, you know? And so mm -hmm. nothing is what it seems. But also, if, if, if you had to look into something really deeply... If you become its vibration, you realize it's not what you think it is, it's something else. And then you realize that a stone is not a stone, it's actually a living organism, you know, something like that. This is what I'm talking about. So that shape, what shape-shifting is as an ability, it's the ability to suspend looking at something or understanding something from the point of view of your belief system, from your identity, and actually embody it and become it and know it by being it. I embody what I talk about. I become what I, what I talk about. And if you can imaginatively become whatever it is that you want to know about, huge power has come to you. You will see whatever it is from a very profoundly deep perspective and, and, and highly you know, uh, evolved perspective and, 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 and formulate information you could never otherwise ever hope to glean or, or, or formulate. It's a very powerful, uh, intuitive, psychic technique, shape-shifting, even if you don't believe that, you know, it, it can turn you into a rabbit or, a, or an owl or whatever, which, which would be nice, but that, that not, nothing I've ever uh, achieved or, or even want to. But uh, I, I, I use the, the technique um, to great effect in my life. As, you know, intuitively and, 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 and psychically. Yeah, I just think, you know, there's folks out there that are in the middle of their creative process that could use that shape-shifting 
idea. Oh, it's brilliant. You know, yeah. You, 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 can, you can write books with it. You can, <laughs> you, yeah. you can do anything. You see, I, I write Australia's best-selling metaphysical book ever, you know, the number one Australian metaphysical book. And the thing about me is I'm, I'm not an educated person. I'm, I'm, I'm not well-educated. I, I never finished school. And I've never studied writing, and I, I don't know, you know anything about writing, about publishing, about book marketing. I wanted to, I wanted to write something. I, I wanted to express something, and I knew my limitations, which are considerable. But then also, I, I know these techniques, and so then I became, and and I really mean this, I, I became what I wanted to write about, and then something else happened to me. I, I became somebody else. Uh, you know, something else came through. I, you know, I changed. I transformed in, in that time for that moment that, that I was writing. The, 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 the stuff flowed out of me that otherwise doesn't, you know, and I wouldn't, uh, you know. So, so that's, how, that's how I created the book. That's how I managed to do it. We can apply these techniques to, to beautiful and, and, and great effect in, in, they have relevance in every area of our life. There isn't one aspect of our lives that it, it isn't relevant to. <laughs> it's just amazing. So, uh, William, where can folks find you? And I think you've, you're leading tours uh, eventually in Africa. Yeah, you know, look, I've, I've got events all over the world, actually. And, uh, you know, the best place to find me is on williamwhitecloud.com, www.williamwhitecloud.com. There's all kinds of resources there. There are free chapters to the books I'm talking about, all kinds of ideas expressed there about living in the soul-inspired way, really good online courses. And as you mentioned, I, I do run um, safaris. Every year I take people to Africa on what I call my soul safaris. It's the highlight of my life and, and the best thing I do. And I just love speaking to you. Thanks so much. And Thank you so much.